Titus chapter 1. Some of you may be blessed by what I'm about to say. Some of you may be disappointed. This will likely be our last lesson in our series on church leadership. I was waiting for the, ah. didn't hear it. That's okay. <laughs> this is our last lesson, our series on church leadership, and we're going to move on to something else. Uh, this is an odd time, right? This is vacation season. You can tell by the empty seats around you. This is vacation season. It also makes it difficult to preach sometimes because uh, my wife and I were able to get away this past week, which was wonderful. Certainly put pressure on coming up with a sermon for Sunday. But uh, also, we're leaving for vacation again in August. My family and I are going up to Algonquin Park for a week, so that's coming up. Some of you have vacation planned, uh, and so it's that time of year, right? Uh, but we're thankful for it. So, why did I say all that? Who knows? Uh, Titus chapter 1. We've been doing a series on church leadership, and what we've been trying to do is be as biblical as we possibly can. As a church, and I believe that I can speak collectively here for us as a church, uh, we have a commitment uh, to follow the clearly revealed Word of God when it comes to identifying and appointing leadership in the church. And uh, we believe the biblical pattern is a plurality of elders in a church. I think that's pretty indisputable if you get into the New Testament and just see the the overt teaching and the example uh, of the New Testament churches. They were consistently led by a plurality of qualified elders. And so we desire to follow that pattern. So in that vein, we've been doing a series. uh, Number one, to help men who may have a desire to be an elder. And understand that elders are not the spiritually elite. Elders are simply those who are living exemplary Christian lives, who have a spirit-given ability uh, to teach and preach the Word of God. And so that may be you this morning. You may have never thought about yourself as being an elder, but maybe you should. Uh, And so part of this series is to help men understand what the qualifications are for eldership, but it's also to help the congregation, to help us as a church. And you folks uh, have been sitting and ingesting and taking this in, hopefully uh, recognizing this as part of your authority and responsibility as church members, to be able to take what the Word of God says and apply it. Look around and see, are there men who meet these qualifications Because the day is going to come when your responsibility will be to participate in the appointment of those men to the office of elder. And so this is important for everybody across the board, for men who may be trained up as elders, for the congregation at large to identify those elders. And so with that, we come to our last lesson. We could say more, but we're going to end it with this. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. Paul said to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And there you see the plurality of elders. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And if you're here this morning and you don't really go to church a whole lot and you're curious about church, you maybe don't know a whole lot about church or Christianity, maybe just what you see in the news, understand this is what the Bible says. And we hold ourselves to Scripture. So if you see, and your experience is such, that you've seen other churches or other uh, those who claim to be Christians uh, in positions of leadership who don't meet this criteria, they are wrong, and this is right. 
Okay? Uh, so, when we say that leadership is not to be arrogant, if you have experienced arrogant spiritual leaders, they're wrong, and they're in contradiction of Scripture. Okay? Uh, if you've seen any who are quick-tempered, if you've seen any uh, who are greedy for gain, right? Uh, they're wrong, and they're in contradiction of Scripture. Uh, he's also to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then we come to our verse for today, verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We've talked a lot about character because the Bible talks a lot about character. And we've realized that when we're looking for somebody to lead a church or to be part of church leadership, we're not looking for those uh, who are what? Uh, the ones, you know, known for their organizational abilities. Those who have the greatest charisma, that's not what we're looking for. Those who have the greatest financial savvy, those who have some innovative ways to gather a crowd, that's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for are men who meet the biblical criteria, the character qualities, which are ultimately character qualities of Christ, and that is paramount. But today we come to something that you could say is a character quality, but is also an ability. A character quality and also an ability. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That's character. The word of God is precious. The word of God is authoritative. The word of God is instructive. And so we hold firm to that word. That's character. So that he may be able to give instruction. Well, that now has to do with ability. With ability. Notice, first of all, it says that this potential elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word. What does trustworthy mean? Well, just that. This, the word is worthy of your trust. The word is reliable. It's sure. It's sound. And what does it say? The trustworthy word as taught. Well, that is absolutely essential. An elder must hold firmly to the word as taught. Well, taught by whom, we wonder? Well, taught by Christ and the apostles. Taught by Christ and the apostles. Well, what about the Old Testament? Well, that's the Old Testament as well. Uh, but as the Christian church, as that covenant community of the church, we understand that we interpret the Old Testament through the interpretive lens of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. So the faithful elder holds firmly to the trustworthy word as it has been taught by Christ and the apostles, and has been then handed on to us. We see an example of that from Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's no such thing as apostolic succession. The Pope is not an apostle. And Bishop so-and-so down the street who calls himself an apostle is also not an apostle. There is no apostolic succession. But what do we see here? There is something that's being handed down from generation to generation to generation. What is it? It's simply the apostolic teaching, the apostolic doctrine. Not the office of apostle, but the teaching of the apostles. And we see that as early as Acts chapter 2, as that new church continued daily in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. So Paul says to Timothy, continue in, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me, Paul as an apostle. And then take what you've heard from me and entrust that to other men who will then be able to entrust that to other men. Well, guess what? 2,000 years later, hopefully what we're doing this morning is teaching the apostolic doctrine. 
that has been handed down from the Apostle Paul and the other apostles to Timothy, to other faithful men, and here we are today. Timothy was to devote himself to understanding and applying and passing on the teaching of the apostles. Paul's teaching carried apostolic authority. There was only 12 apostles. They're foundational to the church. God spoke the inspired, revelatory word through the apostles. And if Timothy were to be a faithful pastor, he would have to hold firm to that, pass it on, teach others. He said similarly to the Christians in Philippi, Paul did in Philippians 4.9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, he's calling the believers to look to the apostolic teaching. That's what you're to continue in. Again, Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13 says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so, uh, Timothy, don't be innovative. It's not your job to invent It's your job to implement, right? It's not your job to innovate. It's your job to receive the entrusted word and to hold firmly to that. So what do we have? We have a body of truth passed on from the apostles, which the faithful pastor will receive as authoritative and devote himself to. He's going to devote himself to learning and living and passing on that truth to others. Jude refers to this as the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints in Jude 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That is, there is a tradition here, isn't there? There's an apostolic tradition. There's an apostolic doctrine. And that's what we contend for. That's what we embrace. That's what we pass on to others. That's what we learn, and that's what we live, and that's what we hold firmly to. This means that this is not open to debate to debate or revision. It's not up to us, every generation, to add tradition or to add, uh, uh, add on to the apostolic doctrine, but simply to view ourselves as what? And Paul says this uh, to Titus in the very passage we've read. Uh, we're to... See ourselves simply as stewards, stewards of that apostolic doctrine. So, the truth of the gospel, the nature of Christ, the revelation of God's person, his instructions to the church, guidelines for holy living, this has been delivered once and for all. This is the trustworthy word upon which God is building the church. Again, the apostles are foundational to the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the church. And look what it says. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, how many foundations does a building have, I wonder? You dig it all out. You, you lay the foundation. Then you build some walls. Then you make another foundation. That's a strange building. There's one foundation. The foundation has been laid. That's the apostles. And so if you're following some tradition, some denomination, with men who claim to be apostles or claim to be in a line of apostolic succession, you're continually rebuilding a foundation which has already been laid. And so there are 12 apostles. They're foundational to the church. 
The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so the foundation of the apostles and the apostolic teaching. So it's to this body of truth that every believer, not just elders, every believer pledges their love and loyalty. It's this body of truth which, through divine inspiration, has been penned down in Scripture and preserved for us today. This truth has God at its source and is therefore true and unchanging and authoritative. Beware of any denomination, any wing of so-called Christianity that has the Word of God and something else to help you, uh, maybe a lens through which you are to interpret the Word of God. Beware of a magisterium. Beware of the Watchtower Society. Uh, Beware of anything that has any other documents, any other teaching to come alongside the Scripture to be held on par with or even above the Word of God. The Word of God, the apostles, the prophets, having penned down the authoritative Scriptures, that now is that body of truth once and for all delivered to the saints to which we are to hold firmly. The truth has God as its source and is therefore true, unchanging, authoritative. It is eternally secure and fit not only to build our lives upon, but to stake our eternities upon. This is the trustworthy word as taught. Again, I'm not called to invent or innovate. We're not called to or charged with being creative in our teaching. We're called to be fully devoted to the Word of God as it has been taught and handed on to us from the apostles. We are to teach the Word not as we wish it was, but as it has been taught. Not the truth with our personal revisions, but as it has been taught. Not with our embellishments, not with our novel interpretations, but as it has been taught. And so there is somewhat of a simplicity to being a preacher. It's not easy You get into theology is not always easy. Study is hard work, but there's also a simplicity. Because my task is simply to understand the Word of God as it has been delivered and then seek to communicate that to the church. Well, there's some simplicity there, and I'm just so thankful that I don't have to come up with something to say. I'm just trying to understand the Word of God and then trying to communicate it in a way which is helpful to others. So our responsibility is to receive the truth and to love the truth and to obey the truth and to live the truth and to share the truth and to defend the truth and to pass the truth on to the next spiritual generation. That's the elder's responsibility. That's also the congregation's responsibility. The congregation has the responsibility to learn the discipline of enjoying God's Word as taught. There's a real danger with the preaching and teaching of that very charismatic storytelling jokester who, who, who just can uh, just have the audience enthralled uh, with his presentation as he brings the Word of God. There's a problem with that because we like that so much, right? In my experience, and if you preach the Word of God, this will be your experience too. If you preach a sermon and you have a powerful illustration in that sermon, a powerful story in that sermon... You get people's attention. I mean, I see it, right? The eye, and people are sitting up in their seats. They're listening. But you know what you find? That's the only thing they remember from that sermon. <laughs> and, and I know this is a little trick of the trade here. I know I can preach an old sermon and you won't know 
as long as I change the illustrations. If I leave the same illustrations and leave the same stories, you'll say, ah, I remember this one. But, so that's a little trick here. If you're a preacher or teacher and you're a little bit afraid to preach an old sermon, just change the illustrations. Nobody will know the difference, right? The congregation has a responsibility to learn the discipline of enjoying God's Word as accurately taught, even if it's plainly taught, without an appetite for creative twists or entertaining packages or enthralling drama. The congregation must develop an appetite for the undiluted, biblical, and accurate word, understanding that the pastor is charged with delivering such a word. And so, we're talking about the teachings of Christ and the apostles, the trustworthy word, and the, the, the pastor's attitude toward it and his abilities concerning it. Look in verse 9. Again, we see that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word, fully devoted to the trustworthy word as taught. He must adhere wholeheartedly to that word. He ought to have an unshakable conviction concerning that word. He clings to the word. He does not deviate from the word. The potential elder is fully convinced of the teachings of Christ and the apostles. He does not vacillate in his conviction. He does not correct the text in his preaching. He does not cast doubt upon the word. He's not shaken or persuaded by false teaching. In that sense, he's the opposite of the Corinthians. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. These are people that are unstable in the faith. And Paul said, I'm, a, I'm concerned. I'm worried. I think you're susceptible to false teaching. Well, God forbid that anybody ever be in the pulpit where the congregation must be concerned that if false doctrine comes along, that man's going to be led astray by it. And that happens. And I could name names, individuals that I looked at as brother pastors, only to see them now no longer pastoring and no longer confessing Christ. The congregation should have no doubt that the faithful elder is fully committed to the apostolic doctrine, holding firmly to that trustworthy word. There should be no concern that the pastor might compromise the truth in the face of opposition or unpopularity. He should be known as one fully committed holding firm to the word. This is essential because according to Ephesians 4, those who hold the office of elder are given to the church in part to instruct the church so that, according to Ephesians 4.14, the church may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so part of our task as elders is to be faithful in instructing the church so the church becomes stable, so that the congregation is not susceptible to such false teaching. And so obviously the elder himself must be holding firmly to that same word. Now, that's a matter of character. But there's also an element of ability here. And as we've said all along is that the qualifications for an elder are primarily character-based, but there is this ability. You could say managing, right? I mean, managing your household well indicates you may be able to manage the church of God well. Uh, But there's also the ability of teaching. Look in verse 9 of Titus 1. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that, what does that tell us? Well, if he's not holding firm to the trustworthy word, he can't do this. So that he may be, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Well, that speaks somewhat of ability. The elder must be able to teach the word. It's painful to sit and listen to somebody who's here saying things, but obviously does not have the ability to teach, right? There are individuals who might understand truth, but have a difficult time communicating that truth. And you're listening to them and you're thinking, I think he knows what he's saying, (laughs) but I have no clue what he's saying. Uh, There is an ability to teach. There is an ability to communicate. You must be able to give instruction. You can only give such instruction in sound doctrine if you are first holding firmly to the trustworthy word, but there is also a matter of giftedness and ability. And so Paul again told Timothy to entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. So the elder, there's no such thing as a non-teaching elder. Whereas we have emphasized character up to this point, we find here an essential ability. Qualifications for an elder, not in Titus, but in Timothy. When Paul wrote to him, he said this, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and then he said, able to teach, able to teach. The potential elder must be able to teach, able to interpret Scripture, to understand truth, to be, be able to communicate it in a way that builds up others. Further, he must be naturally disposed to or apt to instruct others. Here's somebody who's in the Word and just looks for opportunity to teach the Word. He has the desire and ability to impart the truth of God's Word to others, not only from the pulpit, but whenever he has opportunity. He's a man who's given to guiding and counseling and instructing people. He's so immersed in the Scripture that his counsel naturally comes out saturated by biblical principles. Not everyone is able or disposed to do that. According to Ephesians 4, that's again a matter of spiritual gifting. An individual alone cannot determine whether or not a man has such giftedness. And this is where the congregation comes in as well. How can you tell? A man says, I want to be an elder. I believe I have the ability to teach. Okay. Maybe you do. Where do we go from there as a church? Well, we as a congregation can help identify the giftedness in men, giving men an opportunity to preach, sure. And then does God bless that teaching? Does God bless that exercise of that gift? Are people being built up by that individual's teaching? Is the word better understood and applied as a result of their teaching? Those are helpful measures. And so it's not just a self-identification. I think I gifted to be an elder. Well, teach, and let's see. And uh, you can have others who are maybe a little bit further down the road of spirituality to listen and uh, to assess. And so, men, do you have a desire to teach? Let us give you an opportunity to teach. Let's have a conversation. Uh, let's create opportunities for you to share the Word of God with others. And, I mean, our vision and our desire for Calvary Baptist Church is that we be a church that develop men who can preach the Word of God. Right? And uh, so, if that's your desire, let us know, and uh, we will make opportunity. Look in verse 9 again. He says, We must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. What is doctrine? There's a question for you. 
And you say, well, that's that boring classroom-like instruction uh, on theology. Well, that's doctrine. Well, what is doctrine in the book of Titus? Remember when we were there a couple years ago? Doctrine in Titus is not just theology, but it's the implications and applications of that theology. That's sound doctrine. The idea of sound doctrine goes beyond just meaning and includes implications and applications. It actually includes the practical outworking of theology. It includes practical instructions for living. This is what we could call the therefores. This is true, therefore. What are the practical implications of our theology? What, uh, how should what we know about God in Christ affect how we live? That's all included in this idea of sound doctrine. And so the faithful elder not only teaches theology, but he teaches people how that sound theology ought to affect their lives. We see that in Titus 2. Look in Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Immediately after speaking about false teachers and their teaching, Paul says this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then, in verse 2, he begins to show Titus what that sound doctrine is. And you say, okay, we're going to get a theology lesson. But that's not what happens. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Verse 3 talks about older women and their character and their calling. Then he talks about younger men and so on. And then he talks about uh, the servants and so on. Uh, What is he doing? Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he shows them, speak to the different demographics of the church and give them instruction in living. That's all included in sound doctrine. The potential elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he can give instruction in sound doctrine, which also means instruction in sound living implications and applications. You must understand how to teach the therefores. That is, we're not simply producing theological eggheads, but we are teaching theology. We're not filling up minds only, but encouraging that theology to penetrate the hearts and then to be lived out. We're not simply trying to produce some sort of deeper life mystics. We're teaching the glories of Christ and the wonders of salvation and also how those things ought to change how we live day to day. Theology affects how you live as a husband. Theology affects how you live as a wife. Theology affects how you parent. Theology affects how you behave in the workplace. Theology is inherently practical. We're going to see this, look in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. Paul says to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he gives all that practical stuff. Older men, older women, younger men, and so on. This is how you ought to live. And then in verse 11, starts with what word? Say it out loud. For. For. So, so teach all this. Uh, let them live this way. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Teach the implications and applications of theology. Do that, and and here's some theology for you. All of that practical living flows from these realities. The grace of God has appeared. 
called us out away from ungodliness and worldly passions, calling us to renounce those things and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. By the way, this is what makes the difference uh, between a legalistic church and a faithful church. Does the Bible have rules to be followed for Christians? Yes, it does. Surprise. There are, there are lists of don't do and do, right? We see that in the New Testament. But the lists of how we ought to live always flow out of genuine theology. When you divorce the do's from the theology, now you're in trouble and you have legalism. But we have here, as Paul is saying, because God has saved you, because he has called us out away from ungodliness and worldly passions, because he's called us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, and he's really developed that, he's made it possible through salvation, so then live this way. So we're called out of, away from, we're called to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's theology. God has appeared. His grace has appeared. He saved us. He's sanctifying us. Christ is going to return And so what? And now recognizing where we have come from and then looking forward to the fact that Christ is going to return, we know that we're living here in the middle. And so how should we live? And there you have your list of practical instruction. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so the good works flow from redemption. And then... In chapter 3 of Titus, Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And so there's some real practical stuff there. Obey authorities, be obedient, perform good works, yes. Don't quarrel, be gentle, okay. And then in verse 3, what word do we see? For... For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of God, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. If you're here this morning and you come from some religious tradition that is telling you you got to be a good boy or a good girl in order to be saved, that's unbiblical. What does it say? He saved us not according to, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, because you have no righteousness of your own apart from Christ, but according to his own mercy. But according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is rich theology. And what is he saying? Be submissive to your authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Don't quarrel. Be gentle. Why? Because look what God has done for us through Christ. And so we don't separate implications and applications from the theology. If you're in a church and it's just simply teaching rules, I mean, run away. But also, if you're in a church that's just teaching theology, but there's a disconnect and we don't know how it ought to affect our daily lives, then that's also a problem. So the faithful elder can teach the Word of God, which he holds firmly to. He gives instruction in sound doctrine, which includes both theology and its implications and applications.
The implication here is that those whom the pastor teaches also ought to be willing to receive such teaching. And that, again, brings us back to the congregation. And so, what do you do with a church whose appetite, maybe a church whose appetite is just theology all the time, but it just seems to be a disconnect. And we've witnessed that. Those who know theology, but you're saying, but what's with the, what's with the character? <laughs> I mean, bitter, jealous, unforgiving. Uh, you, know, you say, well, I know you know theology, but that gap between the head and heart, I mean, what, what, what's happened there? Why, is there? why is there such a disconnect? On the other hand, you have others who just want, oh, no, this is another series on elders, another sermon on elders. I just want it. I want something practical. I want something for me. I want to know how to be a good mom this week. I want to know how to be a good dad this week. And I want something super practical that I can just take with me, and I don't care about... There's two extremes there, right? And there's the preacher stuck in the middle. Uh, so the congregation also must develop an appetite for theological teaching so that the practical uh, implications, which are essential and there in Scripture, are firmly connected to sound theology. Now... Look at verse 9, we see something else the elder ought to be able to do. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke those who contradict it. And so teach what is true, but also be alert against, and this is the watchfulness. Remember that idea of the shepherd and the sheep. I mean, you're watching the gate. Uh, There's a, a protection there of the congregation to rebuke those who contradict it. That might be those who are contradicting it outside the congregation and even those who are contradicting it within the congregation. But he says he must be able to give instruction and to refute, to rebuke. Must be willing and able to rebuke those who contradict it. That's hard. This is so interesting because so much of what we've learned about the character of a pastor presents this picture of this man who's meek and gentle and humble and non-contentious. But here, it says he must be willing to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine and the implications of sound doctrine. Well, now we learn something important. Although the pastor is to be meek and humble and gentle and loving and avoid quarreling and avoid contention, that does not mean that he's a coward or a pushover when it comes to theology and doctrine. Like Christ, he possesses strength harnessed by the Holy Spirit. Loving, patient, gentle, But when called upon to handle false teachers, he's both able and willing to rebuke, and even to rebuke sharply. All of that is done based upon the authority of the Word of God, not his own authority. The Word which he thoroughly grasps, and to which he is firmly committed, he also defends. Now, look again to Titus chapter 1, verse 9 through 13. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy the word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate. They're rebels, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Those are those Jews who are saying, we're going to add works to faith, right? And so you need to be circumcised. And again, let's do this again. If you're coming from some religious tradition that adds to faith, and says, okay, believe, but you also must do this. Uh, believe by faith, yes, but add these other things. Okay, well, Paul would like to have a word with you. Especially those of the circumcision party. You've got to be circumcised and you must believe. He says they must be silenced. There's no room for this. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. 
One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Well, that sounds like authority, doesn't it? On the other hand, we balance that out and say that Paul said to Timothy that you've got to be gentle, even with your opponents. And so there's a balance there that we're trying to strike. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And so we got to keep that uh, in mind. we also got to recognize that is not an excuse to look over false doctrine. Sometimes you got to rebuke. Sometimes you got to rebuke sharply. And so the faithful elder must be willing and able to do this. There's always weeds among the wheat. There's always wolves among the sheep. There will always be those who seek to pollute and deceive and to otherwise lead uh, the church astray. And so the pastor, as a good shepherd, over the sheep that God has entrusted to him, must be ready to confront false teaching when necessary. And we're so imbalanced. Because you have some pastors who are the feel-good pastors. I just want to teach and make you feel good. Okay. It doesn't have a backbone, though, and when false teaching comes along, he's going to let it slide. On the other hand, you got that guy who's just out there trying to weed out uh, that false doctrine all the time, and uh, it seems that he has very little gentleness. There is a very oft-quoted passage from John Calvin. You've probably heard it before. He says, A pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The Scripture supplies him with the means for doing both, and he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able to both, both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. And so there's the pastor with the two voices, trying to strike that biblical balance, teaching the Word of God, and also a willingness and ability to rebuke those who contradict it. So in conclusion, when considering a man to be an elder or overseer or pastor, whatever word you want to use, we must look for a man who has a proper relationship, not only with God, but a proper relationship to the Word of God. He's fully devoted to the teachings of Christ and the Apostles. Not only this, but he's submissive to that teaching as well. So he's teachable. He receives the word as a student and as a steward. He's a perpetual student, always willing to learn more from the word. He is submissive in that he allows the word to change him, does not dare to alter the word. He knows that he is a steward of the word and that he has been entrusted by God with the scriptures to teach them as God would have him. He does not use the pulpit or his teaching ministry to advance his own agenda, to teach his own ideas, or to garner his own acclaim. Instead, he teaches the word unaltered to advance God's purposes and for the glory of God alone. Further, the faithful pastor is a man who not only loves sound theology, but he understands the implications and applications of that theology. He teaches the therefores of Scripture. He's not afraid to give practical applications and instruction. He encourages people to even alter their attitudes and alter their affections and their actions in response to what the Word clearly teaches. He's instructing people to respond to what they have learned about God and what they have learned about what God has done for them, and especially what God has done for them in Christ. In this way, he teaches sound doctrine. Lastly, the pastor, because he holds firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, has a willingness again to confront false teachers when necessary. He does not shy away from the task, 
He does not shy away from rebuke, but he also doesn't relish in rebuke. Like a good shepherd, he will not allow his people to be left vulnerable to false teachers who will prey upon them, and so he guards the church against false teaching and against the ungodly living that naturally flows from false teaching. So, men, would you be an elder? In addition to seeing to it that you possess the character that we've studied thus far, ensure that you have a proper relationship to the Word of God. Read it and study it and obey it and love it and look for opportunities to teach it to others. And above all, hold firmly to it. We're going to close with this passage, 2 Timothy 4. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, that time was coming in Paul's day, and that time is certainly here today. If you're here this morning and you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, understand that all the conviction we just talked about, this adherence to the Word, this devotion and holding firmly to the Scriptures, all this flows out of salvation. The elder is one who first and foremost has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the only Savior from sin and the only rightful Lord, fully trusting Him as the one who died in our place on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf, dying, being buried, raising three days later, having overcome the penalties of our sin and granting us that very same victory, and now exalted as Lord. And that is, He is one and the only one who deserves our allegiance. And so we confess Christ as Lord. And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, that if we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And that's an open invitation to everyone this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as a church that you'll help us to be faithful, holding firm to your word, recognizing it as the trustworthy word, and holding firm to your word as it has been taught, recognizing that There is a body of apostolic truth which has once and for all been delivered to the saints. Help us to hold firmly to that apostolic teaching, to devote our lives to understanding it and and communicating it to others. I pray that you'll help us. We know that we don't have... uh, We know that we have blind spots and there are areas in our theology and our doctrine that are in error. Uh... Unfortunately, we don't have the clarity all the time to see those errors. We pray you'll help us uh, more and more to grow in fidelity to the apostolic doctrine. So show us where we may be in error. Show us where we can uh, become more accurate biblically. So teach us and continue to shape us and form us. Help us to continue to be teachable. And the Lord, help us to have a love and a devotion, not only to the theology, uh, but also to the implications and applications of that theology. So Uh, Help us to be submissive and meek towards the Scriptures. Uh, Help us have an attitude that just says, Lord, change us. Change us through your word. 
reveal our sin, reveal uh, sinful attitudes and affections and actions, expose it in our hearts through your word, uh, pierce our hearts or like a sword and uh, uh, expose that uh, in us so that we can change. And then give us that heart of obedience uh, that will respond to that conviction uh, by uh, becoming more and more like Christ. So help us as a church to be a beacon of your word and of truth. And again, reveal to us errors in our thinking. And then, Lord, we just pray this morning for those who have not yet received Christ. I pray that they'd see their need for Jesus, uh, that they would embrace him, trust him and him alone as Savior, and uh, ultimately confess him as Lord of their lives. So we pray that you do that work as well. We thank you for this. Continue to grow Calvary Baptist Church and uh, form and shape men for eldership and give us wisdom as a church as to how we can help train up such men. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of your precious Son. Amen.